Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. On today's show, we'll be talking about how the Universal Accreditation Act will affect international adoptions. I think you're going to find this show very interesting. The Universal Accreditation Act has kind of slid under the radar for a lot of adoptive parents, not so much adoption professionals, and this show will answer a lot of your questions. Here's an idea of what you will hear. So what it basically does is apply Hague regulations that were previously only applied to adoptions from Hague Convention countries to all international adoptions. So it's universal in that Hague requirements are now going to be required for all international adoptions. And the way the Universal Accreditation Act does that is by requiring that families work with a Hague-accredited or approved adoption service provider so that they can ensure that everything is Hague compliant as far as ethical practices, qualifications of team members, and just overall making sure it's Hague compliant. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the Director of Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility and Adoption Education Organization, providing support and unbiased information before, during, and after adoption or fertility treatment to help create strong families. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. We are a weekly radio show, and we use the podcast model, and that allows you to automatically hear each episode if you subscribe. You can subscribe at either iTunes or on the radio page of our site, creatingafamily.org slash radio show. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. For, for many patients, cost can be a barrier to pursuing fertility treatment. That's why Faring offers a savings card for their endometrin vaginal inserts. The savings card offers up to $100 savings each month on your endometrin prescription for eligible patients. You can ask your doctor for more information. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletters. We would love to have you be part of that community. We let you know about the latest developments in adoption and infertility, as well as about the new resources that we add each week to our site. Oh, and we'll also tell you about that week's blog and show topic, and you can send in your questions for the show and comment on the blog. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter on every page of our site. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors who believe in our mission of providing unbiased and accurate information to the pre- and post-adoption family community as well as uh, infertility patients. One of our sponsors is Hopscotch Adoptions. They are a national adoption agency with offices in North Carolina and New York. They place children from Bulgaria, Georgia, Ghana, Armenia, Morocco, Serbia, and Ukraine. We also have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They have been providing adoption services for more than 50 years with offices in California, Colorado, South Carolina, and Kentucky. 
And we also have a other host of uh, quite a few, in fact, uh, service uh, uh, adoption service providers, adoption agencies, and it is uh, that are sponsors. And it is through their generosity that we are able to bring you this show. So we ask that when choosing an adoption agency or a service provider, please choose one from the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location services provided, years in operation, or just a a lot of factors that we think are important when choosing. And by using these directories, you you support those who support us, and we truly thank you. Today's show is on how the Universal Accreditation Act will impact international adoptions. The Universal Accreditation Act is now reality. How, how is it going to change international adoption? And if you're already, uh, if you're already in the process of adopting, how will it, how will it affect you? Our guests today are Robin Sizemore. She is the founder and executive director of Hopscotch Adoptions. They are an international adoption agency in North Carolina and New York. We also have Nicole Skellinger. She is an adoption attorney and Chief Operating Officer at MLJ Adoptions. They are an international adoption agency based in Indianapolis, Indiana. Welcome, Robin and Cole, to Creating a Family. I'm so glad you guys can be here today. Thanks, Thanks, Tom. It's absolutely a pleasure to be here. Well, let me start with you, Nicole, for a very easy question. Maybe maybe it's easy and maybe it isn't. (laughs) Um, uh, I think we all have to be on the same page. And, And while I think a lot of adoptive parents have heard about the Universal Accreditation Act, and I know all international adoption agencies have heard about it, um, and we'll have a number of agencies that will be listening to this show as well, um, but, but, uh, but primarily adoptive parents. And not everybody really knows what it is. So let's start with, you know, the, what is the Universal Accreditation Act? Sure. Well, the Universal Accreditation Act of 2012 is a federal law. Um, It became effective July 14th of 2014, so very recently becoming effective. What it basically does is apply Hague regulations that were previously only applied to adoptions from Hague Convention countries to all international adoptions. So it's universal in that Hague requirements are now going to be required for all international adoptions. And the way the Universal Accreditation Act does that is by requiring that families work with a Hague accredited or approved adoption service provider so that they can ensure that everything is Hague compliant as far as ethical practices, qualifications of team members, and just overall making sure it's Hague compliant. All right. So... It, the the protections that existed and the requirements, I guess there's two ways to say that, um, mm-hmm. under the Hague, and, and by the way, audience, when we use the word convention, that's just another word for treaty. So uh, the Hague Treaty for Intercountry Adoption, which the U.S., let's see, we became, we enacted that, we we had the legislation, uh, what, 2008. So we've been, is, is that right, Nicole? Yeah. All right, yeah. so we've been a, a party to it since 2008. And if if we're if you're doing it in, in the past before 20, July 14th, 2014, um, and I, this is I'm asking this as a question to you, Nicole. I want to make sure I'm got this right. All right. Mm-hmm. So uh, prior to uh, July 14th, 2014, just a couple of weeks ago, um, if you were adopting from a country that was also had also signed the Hague Treaty on Intercountry Adoption, uh, then all adoptions between that country and the United States had to proceed under the Hague rules uh, that your, the country, in this case the United States, had applied. 
But if you were adopting from a country that was not had not signed the Hay Treaty, had not joined that treaty, then those adoptions did not have to comply with the requirements that were in the Hague Treaty. It was. Did I get that right, uh, Nicole? That's correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. I just. Okay. So, guys, now, but now, from what Nicole just told us, it doesn't matter whether the country you were adopting from um, is was not a uh, a previous had not signed the Hague Treaty. The Hague rules have to be complied with. And the way that the law, the U.S. law, is making that happen, it's requiring parents to work with an adoption agency in the United States that is uh, licensed and accredited under the Hague. Is that right, Nicole? Exactly. And then agencies that are licensed or accredited are under the supervision of the Department of State so that they can monitor that that's happening. Gotcha. Okay. Robin, what can you of the of the countries that are placing many children to the United States and 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 many is you know may not be a whole lot but let's say of the top 20 some odd 20 to 25 whatever countries that are placing can you rattle off the names of the of the the, the larger ones uh, as far as number of children that were not a member were, had not signed the Hague Treaty were not a member of the Hague uh, and so are being impacted, adoptions from that country are being impacted now because they're the ones who are now having to use an accredited uh, adoption agency in the U.S. What countries are we talking about? Well, well I would say that um, Ethiopia is probably the largest okay. right now. Um, I believe That's certainly the one that everybody is talking about. Uh, or the, yeah. a lot of people are talking about. Um, there are probably some other African countries. Uh, Nicole, do you? I, 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 I should have uh, given you a warning on that one, <laughs> Robin. Yeah. Uh, there are only a couple I, hundred countries out there. Yeah, uh, I've, I've pulled up some some stats on that, and it seems like um, let's see, the top sending countries. It appears to be. China's large, obviously, but that's China was a hate country, regulated. so that they wouldn't. Yes, yeah, always yeah. been regulated. Um, yeah, we Ethiopia have, is the biggest one that comes to mind. The big, it, Nicole, Ukraine can you think of any Democratic others? Republic. Yeah, I think Ukraine uh, is one yeah. larger one. Um, Democratic Republic of Congo, which I know is in the top six. Yeah. Well. Yeah, and I wanted to ask a specific question, and we're going to come back to Ukraine because I'm going to ask a specific question about that in a minute. All right. And then a host of much smaller uh, placing countries uh, who, who would, would also fall under that. Robin, if uh, are all adoption agencies that were already accredited under the Hague Treaty, because they were working with countries like China and, and other countries that, that were um, had signed the Hague. So they, they were already accredited under the Hague Treaty. Are they automatically accredited for these now under the Universal Accreditation Act for the non-Hague countries that are coming in? Um, well, it depends on if the country has an accreditation standard. Um, for example, Ethiopia, you have to be an authorized accredited agency to have a program there. So, for example, Hopscotch does not have an Ethiopia program. We do not have authorization to work there, um, even though we are a Hague accredited agency. So if the country requires um, an additional approval over and beyond what our State Department requires of us, then you know, that's, that's going to be the difference. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. 
So it's not just U.S. approval. You're approved under Hague, but it, you also, certain countries have their own um, approval or accreditation or licensure program, and so you'd have to be approved, licensed, or accredited under their program as well. That's correct. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Nicole, what about cases of families that were already in the process of adopting from a country when um, before July 14th, 2014? Well, it depends where they are in the adoption process um, before July 14th, 2014. There are some provisions for grandfathered cases. So when a case is a grandfathered case under the Universal Accreditation Act, the, the Universal Accreditation Act rules don't apply. Um, the requirements for grandfathered cases are generally going to be if a family filed their I-600A or their I, or I-600 on or before July 13, 2013. So that's a year ago that we're talking about. And so those families would be grandfathered. There's also an opportunity for families who may have submitted their dossier to the country and or received a referral or a match from the child's country, and the Department of State would need to determine if all of that was done appropriately. So in those cases, they would be grandfathered, and the UAA rules would not apply to them so that they would not need to work with an adoption service provider. Um, but then there are some transition cases that are not considered grandfathered cases, but the families have begun the adoption process and maybe have gone pretty far through the adoption process. Uh, but that's really going to be very case-specific depending on which services were provided, which services are going to be left to, provide, to be provided. Um, there's lots of guidance on that as well on USCIS's website under USCIS Transition Guidance. And Really, it's going to be case-specific in that way. But for those cases that are not considered grandfathered, they, the UAA would still apply, meaning that you would still need an adoption service provider if the family needed to get a home study, a home study update, or an addendum. So I think that's important to note. Um, but then for families who are, have not started the adoption process yet or are just at the beginning stages, they will then need to work with a Hague-approved or accredited adoption service provider. So that's really the impact. Okay. Now, Robin, does this apply now? So, so it w making a very broad statement, does this now mean that anybody who is adopting internationally must use a, uh, an accredited adoption agency or, or adoption service provider is, is the defined term in, in the in the law um, under uh, an accredited under the the Hague accreditations? Is that what that is that basically what this is meaning? It does, and um, I would say that um, it it also impacts families that were adopting from Hague uh, Convention countries, and they no. had a uh, uh, because the family, if they were adopting, so to speak, um, independently, for example, uh, they had a home study from a Hague accredited agency. Um, that Hague accredited agency must also agree to be the primary provider, and that has caught a lot of agencies off guard. They did not anticipate that because they were contracted to provide singular service as a home study, and now the, the State Department, I think, is an unintended consequence. Um, by default, uh, the primary provider is going to be 
the person who, or the approved person or the accredited agency that wrote the study for a family to adopt independently in a Hague Convention country. So the agency is now taking on a larger role than they have anticipated by being the primary provider as well. So does this mean uh, that you can no longer adopt independently internationally from any country? Robin? And the, Yes, the State Department um, says that there is no such thing as an independent adoption, but for semantics purposes. Go ahead. Oops, I think we're having a problem. I can't hear you, so I think we'll... Uh, Nicole, can you finish up what she is saying about the... Uh, and we'll bring her back on. I'm not sure how we lost her. Sure, sure. So the impact of the Universal Accreditation Act on independent international adoptions. Honestly, it, it effectively eliminates independent international adoption in many ways or in the way we used to know of independent international adoption in that while prospective adoptive parents technically and by law can act on their own behalf in their adoption, Ultimately, they still will be required to work with a Hague-accredited or Hague-approved adoption service provider, and that provider is going to be responsible for that entire case. So all of the services that are going to be provided uh, for the adoption for that family, they're responsible for creating a service plan to make sure that things are going well and to let the family know about how the process will work in the country, and also to oversee any foreign attorney or foreign staff that are working towards the legal process of adoption in the country. So ultimately, the adoption service provider is still responsible and liable for the entire adoption, whereas in the past, an independent adoption often occurred where a prospective adoptive parent would make a connection in the child's country of origin and just complete the adoption directly that way, and that's no longer going to be permissible. A lot of families are also finding um, for home study purposes, if they had intended to initially start an independent international adoption, uh, families are not going to have their home study released to them uh, until they have a primary provider that's indicated. And that's a question that we've received somewhat recently and in, in issues for families. Um, but really, because, because there's no more independent international adoptions, the home studies cannot be released. And I think that's what Robin was referring to as well, in that um, you, have, you must have a primary provider. Robin, are you? Have we worked out? Yeah, I can hear you now. Good. I'm back. Robin, um, what countries was independent adoptions in the past even allowed? Ukraine comes to mind. Um, were there? Any, and you said, uh, what other countries allowed uh, potentially? Can or, and Nicole, can you think of any too? Yeah, I mean, Pakistan, Morocco, actually any, uh, virtually any uh, country, I think with the exception of perhaps China, maybe Korea, okay. uh, quite quite a large number of countries, yeah, Hague and non-Hague, permitted independent adoption. Um, it was a matter of with the Hague, uh, if it was a Hague case, if the Hague accredited agency had a policy of providing a home study and no other services uh, to the to the client family um, and permitted them to do so. Um, many Hague accredited agencies refused to do so because of the, the liability that's attached to that. And um, we, we believe in the services that are provided that are necessary for successful placement and in, in the well-being of the child. So there are so many countries that have permitted independent adoption that 
I think it's, it's going to be very difficult. We've heard from the central authorities of these other countries that they keep saying, well, you know, agencies are not permitted uh, to be a part of the process, and that right. that has nothing to do with the U.S. side of what's being asked of us as a primary provider. Yeah, and what what Robin is referring to is that there are some there are specific countries that prohibit uh, an agency from being involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems to be we have a conflict. Actually, we don't, um, because as long as we understand that the central authority is going to be providing those services, you would typically have a foreign provider on the ground who is not a supervised provider because they're not performing any of these six services, but they're merely um, making sure that the dossier is received in country and translated, that's permitted, Um, making sure the dossier gets from point A to point B, receives the family in country, makes the appointments, make sure that the family knows where to go, when when to go, and and what to bring, and uh, just takes them from the beginning to the end to the visa exit window and off you go. Um, But on the back side is where... Um, there, it, there is a huge amount of re- responsibility reporting and documentation that must be in place before services are provided, um, lest we have our COA site visit for renewal. Um, our peer evaluators will come. They'll audit our files. And if that is not in, in order, then we are at serious risk to lose our accreditation. Okay, so I see your point. So it, there, the you would just proceed in country com, in compliance with the central authority or who the the uh, the governmental agency in that country that is processing adoptions, and you would then uh, be proceeding once you get home under any of the requirements under under the Hague. Did I understand you correctly? Um, even while the process is taking place, for example, there's documentation um, that the central authority must provide uh, the family, um, typically called the Article 16, or it could be um, in a non-Hague Convention country. It's, you're still going to be looking at particular documentation that uh, is necessary to ensure that the adoption was carried out, as we said, within uh, the legal law of the country. And... Um, and that has to be obtained by the agency and held on record. So um, there's interaction regardless of the central authority's um, mandate. What I found in, um, for example, the, in Armenia, when they say that there is no agency allowed um, to work in Armenia, it means that you can't have an adoption agency that is performing any of these services on behalf of a child and a family for intercountry adoption. It does not mean that you cannot have someone on the ground who's making sure that the dossier is translated and from point A to point Z, getting the family through the process. They're merely um, acting as a host, translator, logistics person on the ground. But the agency is responsible on this side for all of the documentation and the foreign provider agreements are adhered to. Um, so there's quite a bit of work on this side. Yeah, I would, I would assume so. You are listening to Creating a Family. I'd like to take a moment to thank a few more of our gold sponsors and to remind you that it is through their generous support that we can bring you this show and all the resources at Creating a Family. Our videos, our, our website, our the extensive social networks. 
We have Children's Connection. They are an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the U.S. We also have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproductive law. Nicole, what about the countries that place very few children to the U.S. and it's and there's no agency, U.S. agency, adoption agency that has a program in that country because so few adoptions are being processed? What happens then if, if a family is wanting to adopt from that country? That is very difficult for families wanting to adopt from that country and also for relative adoption, which we find that occurring more and more, um, because they'll need to find an adoption service provider to provide those services, yet adoption service providers may not be set up to provide those services. They may Mm -hmm. not have developed a country program in that country, and there's a lot of work that goes into developing a country program. So when a family contacts us, it's hard. It would be very difficult for us to just open a new program with one family wanting to adopt a child from one country. Right. It would be cost prohibitive. Yes, exactly. Sometimes it takes months or years to get an approval. How Robin was just talking about the approvals in the country. I mean, there are pages and pages often of documentation we provide to the country, translations and things like that, that make it very, very difficult for us to help those families. So, uh, Effectively, in many of those countries where families are looking to adopt from a smaller country that's not a large sending country in international adoption, they may not be able to do so or may not be able to find an adoption service provider who can accommodate that request and become then competent in adoption from that country. Is is it possible to provide the protections of the Hague uh, as as an adoption service as an adoption agency here in the U.S. Without having to, with the families going in knowing that it's going to be a, that there's not going to be a lot of hand holding on the ground because you don't have people on the ground there and you don't really know the process, can you do the, can you do the adoption um, in compliance with the requirements of Hague? Unless you, if you are not very familiar with that country and that country's system, Robin. Well. A part of our responsibility is to understand and to have that support infrastructure in place. Um, you may recall uh, something that we think about is, you know, well, families say, well, I live there, I know the language, and but I, I can't know that you didn't induce someone to uh, make a child available for adoption. I can't know that. Um, and... I think you may recall some some maybe two years ago there was an agency that I think one of the first agencies that endured a, a temporary suspension, and it was because of a client family that went abroad and felt that they did not have the infrastructure in place to support the family while they were there and made a complaint to COA, um, and then the agency endured a suspension. So we're cognizant of that as well, the quality of service that we provide is attached to our name. And if a family goes over there and they unintentionally break a law, it's on our on our name. Um, if they circumvent any anything and uh, want to expedite things, all of that comes back on us. So we're very reticent to work with anyone who just would like to do it themselves because they're truly asking us to trust and not supervise in our we are charged to supervise, and and trust is not the same. Yeah, I can definitely. Yeah, 
it's an interesting thing. So what about and you alluded to this um in your in your last response. There are US citizens living throughout the world and uh it has been a many US citizens uh have adopted um from the country where they're living. They may be living there permanently, they may be living there um when by permanent I mean a long-term um, residence. Um, or they may be there on a, a temporary multi-year assignment or even a less year, even a much more temporary assignment. So how do our families that are living in the country, uh, Nicole, are they, how, what's happening now to those type of adoptions? Are U.S. citizens living abroad? Yes, exactly. That have adopted a child? Well, no, or that would like to adopt a child in the country okay. that they are living in. And they're going to live sure, there sure. for period of time. Well, the same rules are going to apply to them if they do want the child to be able to become a U.S. citizen. They're going to have to follow all the rules of the UAA, um, the Universal Accreditation Act, in order for that child to eventually be able to immigrate to the United States and become a citizen. Okay, so in this scenario, what if a family is, uh, I I know of a number of families who are missionaries abroad, and they're going to be Mm -hmm. there for five years or so, or some, some don't know when they will be coming home. And they uh, have uh, complied, or they're in the process, or would like to uh, adopt in the future. And they would be adopting under the laws of whatever the country they're at. And they would go through the adoption process. They would then reside in that country for two years after the fact. Is it still possible for them then to bring the child in under a? I don't know. I'm out of my league here. Um, Sure. Under a different type of visa, that Thank could be you, yes. essential, mm-hmm. but not under the, what we've been talking about. If we're talking about the orphan visa or traditional international adoption, but that could be a possibility for those families. They would want to though contact um, a U.S. attorney that specializes in immigration to make sure right. that everything's done done to the T. Yeah, and I, I um, yeah, please, Robin. I, I might add also that. Um, we're finding that quite a few countries uh, will not permit a foreign family residing there to um, um, complete an adoption under their domestic adoption laws oh, as okay. well. They're making them um, follow the USCIS pr- procedure. Is that a new something? I, it's new to us. We've, we've seen where, um, for example, the country of Georgia if the family has dual citizenship, they're actually requiring the family to um, terminate their Georgian citizenship before they go to court because they want the adoption to be on solid legal ground. And so it's, it was a surprise to us as well. Yeah, I bet it was. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, well, let me ask specifically about uh, two countries and admit that these are selfish questions. We have... Uh, on the Creating a Family site, we have, uh, in fact, it's one of our very popular things, uh, features is uh, in the past they have been called country charts. We're now calling them adoption comparison charts when the new site is launched. But And we have them for uh, domestic infant, domestic foster, and then we have them for all the charts for all the, uh, I think it's top 17 countries that place to the United States. Uh, it was top 20, but a number of the countries last year who were top 20 are not currently uh, processing children. So I think it's 17, if I remember correctly. 
and we analyzed the 25 factors that we think families should consider when adopting. And two of them um, in the past have allowed independent, I, I believe that would be the correct, I'm actually not the person here on our staff who uh, keeps these up to date, but one is Ukraine, and, and I know that, and we actually received a question on on Ukraine as well. So let's talk specifically, I don't know given the uh, what's happening currently with adoptions, given the uh, the war there, uh, but uh, how will adoptions from Ukraine change now after now that we've or the Universal Accreditation Act uh, is is in force? Robin, I believe you guys have a program there, so let me ask you that question. We do, and families are traveling as we speak. Um, they continue to travel. The State Department has not um, dissuaded the families as of yet. Um, oh wow! Yes. Yeah. Good luck for them, yeah. Go ahead. Oops. We are continuing to have trouble, Robin, with your phone. I am not sure what it is. Well, again, let me go to you, Nicole, <laughs> and uh, let's talk uh, about uh, uh, do you have any – I'm blanking now on – does MLJ have a program in Ukraine? I don't think they do. We do, a, a small program. It's becoming larger, though, because Ukraine had really been predominantly independent international, and we're, we're having families that are contacting us now that had started independent adoption oh, and yes. are looking to adopt from Ukraine. Um, Ukraine so was one so, of the largest that allowed independent adoptions, as far as I know, yeah. anyway, in the past. Okay, so explain to us how that will be different. How is it going to look different now? Predominantly, it's because those families will need to work with a Hague accredited or adoption service provider. Um, I think some of the issues that surround that also are families who had already started an independent international adoption from Ukraine where they're already connected with a facilitator or an adoption attorney in the country, and um, they may need to change the person that they're working with in order to work with an adoption service provider. So that's an issue that that we're seeing in Ukraine now. But the main difference, though, is going to be that they'll need an adoption service provider overseeing the case. Ukraine is also one of those countries that um, really doesn't allow for adoption service providers to directly provide the service. However, it is required of us by the United States to oversee and verify that adoptions are happening and verify that things are going well, ethical standards are being followed in the best interest of the child. Uh, but we're just seeing a change. And actually, USCIS submitted uh, some guidance that's specific to Ukraine. Um, they've only talked about two specific countries, and Ukraine was one of them because of the just amount of past independent international adoptions and now adoptions that have to go and follow the Universal Accreditation Act. And what was the other country they specifically gave instructions for? Jamaica. Well, and that was the other country I was going to ask you about. Um, what uh, what have they said about Jamaica? Um, it's very similar, and well, there's there's some differences for Jamaica. So there's differences if a family is. Uh, doing an adoption where there's a guardianship of a child versus uh, more of a just an outright adoption. So where is the guardianship, even for families that would have been trans transition families um, or 
cases where they wouldn't ordinarily need an adoption service provider. If it's a guardianship case, they still would um, because the adoption is going to be finalized in the United States. So I think that's something important to note. So those families that do a guardianship case in, in Jamaica are going to need an adoption service provider. Um, and Otherwise, it's basically the same as Ukraine, where the family is going to need an adoption service provider, even though the country doesn't really recognize adoption service providers from the United States. And and from what Robin was saying before, that's more. It sounds more like a conflict than it actually is. It's because who has responsibility for specific things that that they are doing? Um, because it's certainly when you read. The, uh, in particular what Jamaica requires, it certainly seems like it would be problematic for um, a country, for, for an agency to uh, be the primary service provider for an adoption from Jamaica. Um, but I suppose the State Department is, is, is uh, saying at this point that it would not be directly, it wouldn't be a direct conflict. Is that what they're saying? And, and Nicole, I'll go ahead and direct that question to you since you were already talking. Sure. That that seems to be the case, and I think Robin did a good job of explaining how that can work together or work in tandem. But um, it it does seem odd that it, they're not you're not required by the country to have an adoption service provider, yet you are actually required to have an adoption service mm-hmm. provider by the U.S. Uh, Robin, are, are you back? Is... Yeah, you're back with us. Okay. I sure wish I don't know what's going on with our connection. I am, and I apologize to our audience. Uh, okay, I, I apologize as well. I'm on the landline. So, um, and there's two different um, two, two different roles a primary provider is responsible for. It is either supervision of those services or verification of those services. So, um, these countries that have a central authority in place and do not permit adoption agencies to provide any of the services, um, our job is to verify, in fact, that they were done, not supervised. So there's the, okay. the role that we're playing. Mm-hmm. Okay. That, yeah. But, again, unless you already have a program set up in that country, uh, and and in the past, uh, I assume that there are agencies that had a Jamaican program, but if there, if agencies were not required, you know, would there be agencies here in the U.S. who who are even geared up for helping families in Jamaica? Or and and I'm not picking just on Jamaica, but you know, other countries. Robin, I mean, what what happens to to families? I mean, are there agencies that you know of? Yeah. And you may not, since I don't think you guys have a program there. Um, but if there aren't agencies in that country. Are agencies going to gear up to set up so that they can help families? Some are, and it's going to be uh, one of the determinants is, is does the agency have the capacity to fulfill the role and responsibility, um, financial capacity, resources within the infrastructure, and the ability to actually do what you say you're going to do and what you're required to do. And so each agency, I think, is looking at it through the lens of what they are comfortable with. Um, for example, um, we've been asked by a rather large Guyana, uh, Guyanese community, um, some Jamaican, some Trinidad. We're looking at Guyana first, and we'll probably look at Jamaica later. But then, again, in countries where we've been working for a long time that are still traditional, um, Morocco, 
we absolutely feel comfortable working in, in that uh, country as well, continuing that with families. Yeah, you've been there. But, right. Yeah, sure. Um, but there are a lot of agencies that we have heard that um, have set exorbitant fees um, to even entertain it. Um, one agency I spoke with last week uh, for a thousand dollar fee, they will review your transition case to determine if they will or will not take it, and then they're not going to charge you anything less than between ten and twenty thousand dollars to to act as your primary provider. So. I think families are, are are experiencing a lot of sticker shock of what it takes okay. to yeah be compliant on a day to day basis. Yeah, I think yeah. Well, and and that raises a point that I did want to talk about. What is this the uh, application of the Universal Accreditation Act to now all international adoptions? What is that going to do to the to the cost of adoptions? Uh, I'd like to hear both of you talk about that. Robin, since you were currently talking, go ahead. Uh, and, and then, Nicole, I'd like to uh, just to hear your thoughts on that and, and the thoughts of, of what that's going to do to the numbers of international adoptions as well. Go ahead, Robin. Well, when we cost out um, from start to finish an adoption and the resources within, and I think families, uh, you know, sure, they, they forget that an adoption agency, we have to have pretty expensive insurance, um, our rent. When we're required to review and approve a home study, um, we're not looking for grammatical errors. We have to have, um, by either your state or other guidelines, a person that has very specific um, educational experience qualifications that can actually perform that function. Um, so there's so many things that are in our day-to-day operations that we have to compensate our our staff and operations for. So we we do feel like it's going to we're trying to minimize the cost um, to the extent we can. Our partners are reducing their cost for kinship. Um, we're really trying to do our best to minimize those costs. But families that went from paying a, an attorney $400 in country and now have to have a placing agency as a primary provider are shocked when we say that um, we think this we think a fair fee to complete your process is a, is five thousand dollars. They're they're completely blown out of the water with that, mm-hmm. and we we just have to remain financially viable mm-hmm. within the standards oh, yeah. of what COA requires us to 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 be here tomorrow to help and serve the children. How about and you, Nicole? And as you point out, there is certainly a liability issue that you're assuming a certain amount of liability. Go ahead, Nicole. I agree very much with Robin that the responsibilities do require resources, the responsibilities that we have as a primary provider. Um, As far as I think that there's a difference, though, between working with families that have already started an adoption and are in a transition period, um, maybe have already completed a lot of the adoption services where, as the primary provider, we're only needing to verify that those services were completed and we aren't actually responsible for the services already completed. I think there's opportunities, at least within some agencies, to review that family's case file and so they wouldn't be paying the same amount for a full adoption start to finish with an agency. So I think there are some agencies that are able to reduce fees in that way for the transition cases, but ultimately um, 
it, it is going to be more costly to work with an adoption service provider than to do an independent um, international adoption. But there's more services that are provided to the families. You have support services specialists often that follow the family through the whole entire process, um, instructions that are provided, guidebooks and things like that, the time it takes to work with a program director on your adoption. So I think that yeah. as far as agencies, um, when we're taking on non-Hague countries, I know for our, I can really only speak for our agency, we were still providing the same level of service and the same requirements for the most part for non-Hague versus Hague adoptions. And so then the non-Hague adoptions becoming more Hague-like really isn't going to have a financial impact as far as increasing fees because it was services we were already providing as a Hague-accredited, Hague-approved adoption agency. Mm -hmm. Okay. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about how the Universal Accreditation Act will affect international adoptions. Creating a Family has the largest adoption and infertility communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us. They would be even better if you did join us. There are three ways to connect with us on Facebook. We have our Facebook page, Creating a Family. We have our Facebook group. It's a support group. We are uh, now well over 5,000 members. It's a very active group and a very supportive group, and it's uh, Creating a Family talk about adoption and infertility. And you can also connect with me, Davenport one We also, if you are a Penrith fan, we'd love to have you uh, uh, join our boards on Penrith. We have over 30 boards and uh, lots and lots of really great resources uh, on their boards. I love Penrith. And we also have uh, a very active Twitter group, uh, and you can find us at Davenport one on Twitter. Uh, or no, I'm sorry, that's on Creating a Family is the name for uh, both Pinterest as well as Twitter, Creating a Family is, is where you can find us. Uh, Nicole, is there any, is is this, uh, I think we have discussed this, but there wasn't a specific question to this about how uh, the Universal Accreditation Act is going to impact relative adoptions. And I want to make that a specific question because we uh do here it's not that certainly not the most frequent question we ask get asked um but uh, relative adoptions do matter uh and i think it will become even more so now does uh the universal accreditation act apply if you are adopting a relative's child and does it matter what degree of relation that child is it does apply if you are adopting a relative and does not matter the relationship to the child um which has caused a lot of frustration, I think, for families adopting from who, who wish to adopt a relative, and it's really heartbreaking to me in, in some ways because it can become, as we just talked about, cost prohibitive exactly. for a family looking to uh, adopt a relative. That was not their intent; was not overall international adoption. They have a very specific intent, an intent to adopt a very specific child from a very specific country, and the Hague regulations, which are now applied to all adoptions in the U.S really don't speak to that well. I, I hope that in the future there are exceptions to be made and, and things like that or limited liability for an agency, but to date that's not the case. I think secondly, you know, cost is definitely a factor that can negatively impact uh, relative adoption, but then the country that a family wants to adopt from, which we kind of talked about in the past as well, 
the relative may be living in a very obscure country where it's not a large sending country, where not a lot of adoption service providers are providing services, and they may not, even if they have the finances to, to fund that adoption, may not be able to find an adoption service provider that can become competent to help them in their adoption process, specifically if it's a country where they're only allowing relative adoptions, it would become very difficult and maybe cost prohibited for the adoption agency to be able to even develop a country program there. I think that that um, is the most difficult and potentially uh, the most negative aspect of the Universal Accreditation Act. Do you think that there's much chance, do, do, you, do you get the feel that this was an unintended consequence that, that may, they may be able to rectify? Uh, now that, I mean, anytime you pass a complex legislation, there are a lot of unintended consequences, and mm -hmm. it's only after the passage, honestly, that you can probably figure out what they are. Um, Robin, do you think that there's any uh, hope that they will address the negative impact on relative adoptions? I, from, if you're looking at it from a technical and the legal language, I don't see how that they can make a difference. Um, between how uh, the cases are are managed, if you know, if we're required to perform these duties of supervision and/or verification, I I don't see how that they can carve out unless you are within a kinship um, adoption case. I I don't know. That's yeah. I don't think that there's going to be room for that. But I may be okay. wrong. I I hope I am because it it's really become terrible um, separation of families, and we're about building families and keeping families together, keeping families but this together. actually goes again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to raise a question we got from Rose. Uh, I want to just uh, kind of enter into a discussion with you guys concerning this. She, I mean, she raises a good point. She says, why are there so many regulations for international adoption and so few for domestic adoption? We've done both within the last two and a half years, and the comparison is almost comical. So I am uh let me start with you Nicole. Let's talk about that. The it, it, first of all is that perception true do you think? Is it your perception that in fact there are uh significantly more regulations for international adoption versus domestic adoption? And and if so, why do you think that is or is this just a, a paranoia on our case? Nicole? Sure. Well, I think it depends state to state. Every state has their own different um, domestic adoption laws. But by and large, I would say that's true, that international adoption does have more regulations involved with it. But I think it's also because there's four areas of law involved in international adoption where there's one involved in domestic adoption when we're talking about a state specifically, usually. Um, whereas in international adoption, you have the state law that's going to um, dictate the requirements of your home study, potentially post-adoption reporting, and licensing of your adoption service provider. You have federal law that's going to be the immigration aspects of the adoption, the international adoption, you have foreign law. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy.
Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.